Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, back into the book of Colossians. And what we're going to do today is we're going to continue covering our mission statement uh, through the lens of verse 1 and 2 of Colossians chapter 1. Last week, uh, if you remember uh, from our mission statement being, be who we are, where we are, empowered by the Spirit. Last week, we covered the first clause, be who we are, and we talked about identity. And we kind of talked about identity in three different ways. We talked about kind of a general identity, being children of God or being saints. Um, and then we talked about what does it look like to remove false identities, identities spoken over us, over our life that we've kind of latched onto that are, aren't true about us. And how do we let go of those false identities? And then finally, kind of moving into a third phase of asking our creator, who do you say I am? Who am I in you? In kind of a really specific way. Um, and so this week, we're going to transition from looking at phase or, or the first clause, be who we are, to the second clause, where we are. Uh, because the beautiful part about identity is that we take it with us wherever we go. It doesn't matter what kind of job we do or what school we attend or what roommates we have or what neighborhood we live in. We can always be who we are, where we are, and often very intentionally so. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and pray uh, and then read the passage um, and we can dive in. So Jesus, thank you for this morning. We ask that you would be with us today and that we would hear from you in a really particular, unique, wonderful way. Open up our hearts to hear you speaking. We love you. Amen. Okay, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers at Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Okay, so um, what I want to spend some time on today, because as this is a vision series, it's also an introduction to the letter of Colossae. And a big part of hermeneutics is, uh, and hermeneutics is how do we understand the text, is step one is you have to understand what would this text have meant to the original intended audience. And as we get closer to that understanding, then we're more equipped and better equipped to then take that and, and, and see how we can then apply that understanding to our own lives today. And actually in studying the city of ancient Colossae, I found a bunch of similarities between ancient Colossae and Sherwood, but we'll get to that in a minute. I wanna talk briefly just about the history of the city of Colossae, because you can see here uh, very clearly in verse one, or verse two, that this letter is to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And so I want to just do a little bit of history on the city of Colossae so we can understand the kinds of people that were present here uh, during this time. So uh, Colossae is an ancient city in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, really, really, really old, hundreds of years before Jesus, uh, the city was established. I think the first reference in literature we have is from like 800 BC or something like that. And so uh, what ha has happened over the years in the city of Colossae is that they got taken over by the Greeks, you know, so there's a lot of Greek influence and they were taken over by the Romans. So there's a lot of Romans influence and Romans present. And then also the Jewish diaspora happened. So there's a lot of Jews. Uh, there's a large Jewish community as well in Colossae. And uh, if you can look on the map, you can kind of see, uh, you can kind of see where Colossae is. If you look at the top, 
the, the top corner, you can kind of see that on the western coast of Turkey is where Ephesus is, and then the Meander River uh, goes by, and up near the top of the Meander River, we see three cities right next to each other, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Now, Colossae, I believe, was the first of the three cities, but by the and 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 it had it had reached a heyday at one point, a peak, but uh, since then it had declined and kind of fallen under the shadows of these two other cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And what's fascinating is that the mark the modern archaeological excavation that has happened in the region has followed suit and is focused on the cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis, leaving the city of Colossae totally unexcavated. And so you can see from the slide, this is you can go to Turkey and you can visit the city of Colossae. This is it. Well, this is the least kind of the downtown quarter. So you can see uh, this whole area, this raised mound that's covered in dirt uh, is about 22 square acres. And this would be the downtown section of Colossae. So you can see the Acropolis, that would be where the keep or the fort would be for downtown. The Agora, kind of like the marketplace where all the shops and stalls and vendors would be. And then kind of on the right-hand side, you can see that divot. Uh, and that's where the theater would be. And from studying that divot, they assume that theater could fit around 5,000 people. And so with that, they would assume that Colossae is between, I think, like 22 to 30,000 uh, people for population. Um, or 25 to 30,000. The other thing, uh, Colossae, that's interesting with with all this history is that uh, it's a, it, it became a real like melting pot. You've got four really distinct cultures that are kind of mixing together. You have the, the um, native culture, which is modern day Turks, right? Uh, pagans. So there, there's a strong sense of paganism. There's the Greek culture, there's the Roman culture, and there's the Jewish culture. So you have these converging cultures all coming together. And then on top of that, it's also a city in between cities. So it's not of the destination, right? It's it's a place that you go kind of through and in between, kind of like I'd argue Sherwood is, the city between cities. Um, and it's not, you know, and the population is almost identical, right? Where there's so many similarities um, between the two. And what is fascinating about humans is that where we live impacts us so much. And so we see Paul in this letter writing very specifically and uniquely to the specific needs in the city of Colossae because of who the Colossians were. And there a lot of who they were is defined or defined at least influenced by where they live. And the same is true for us. We are so greatly influenced by where we live. And um, I was doing some research on the city of Sherwood just because if we are going to be who we are, the people of God, where we are, you know, we're centered in Sherwood. I know we've got lots of us live elsewhere, Beaverton, Tigard, uh, Tualatin, Newburgh, uh, but, you know, Sherwood's kind of our center, our core. I was just doing some research on Sherwood to understand if we're going to be who we are, where we are, we should understand uh, details about where we are. So uh, I just want to throw these stats up on the screen. So, um, and I'm actually really excited for the 2020 census because it's going to give us new information and I love having up-to-date information. So some of this information needs to be updated, but um, this is what we have right now, the data we have. So 80% of the households in Sherwood have kids under the age of 18. Let me say that again. 80% of the households in Sherwood have kids under the age of 18 a massive portion of the population of Sherwood. Massive. Majority. 
I mean, Sherwood is a, 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 is a city for families. It, and, and beyond that, actually, Sherwood has the largest proportion of people less than 20 years of age. So out of all the cities in Oregon, Sherwood has the highest percentage of the population uh, of people that are under 20 years old. It's 34.6% of the population. We're ranked number one in the city of, or in the state of Oregon. And so if we're supposed to be who we are, where we are, that means that we should be reaching young people. That means that we should be, we should be engaging with kids and with youth and with teens and college students. This should be a huge part of our ministry. And one of the challenging things is right now, it's really hard to do kids ministry over Zoom. I mean, we're watching students, you know, go to school over Zoom and it's so hard to watch the pain. You know, we want kids to be running around and screaming and playing and all the different kind of stuff. And obviously we're limited in those interactions right now because of the coronavirus. And so how do we right now engage with kids? Well, what we're doing is we're trying to equip parents. We're sending out resources every week for parents to uh, help raise their kids in a, in a godly fashion in a way where they pursue Jesus and love the Lord. Um, and then beyond that, uh, we've got a youth group and the youth group meets uh, at uh, the Cedar Creek office building. It's called Hyde House. So, you know, the community center right next to it is Cedar Creek Community Church. And then on the other side of them is a small house and that's called Hyde House. And the youth group is meeting there every Sunday right now from three to four. Um, and if you know someone, a teenager who should be going to youth group and isn't, invite them to youth group. I mean, who knows what work God wants to do on their hearts? at youth group, it would be incredible. Uh, and Rebecca Fisco and TJ Hayamoto are the ones leading that, and they're doing an amazing job. Or, or beyond that, I'm leading a Bible study for young men, uh, kind of junior high to high school age, where we're talking about purpose. Like, why do you exist? What are you here for? To, to, to help young men grow up sure of who they are and where they're going and who the God is they serve and why they're doing what they're doing. And by the way, if you have ideas or resources or passions or anything for the next generation, talk to, let's, let's have a conversation. Come talk to the leadership, talk to myself or Rick or one of the elders. We want to, we want to engage so that we can really be effective being who we are, where we are. Now, um, what's interesting is that Paul wrote this letter very specifically to the Colossians because of what was going on in the world around them. Now, we're familiar um, with uh, his prayer, Paul's prayer for the Colossians that we're going to read as a benediction at the end, uh, that, you know, that they would walk in spiritual wisdom, be strengthened in power, and, you know, and, and walk according to his glorious might with endurance and patience and joy, and all this different beautiful stuff. Now, if I had to summarize the book of Colossians, what's going on is we've got a people you remember all the, the mixing pot of cultures. We have a people that are being pulled in a really like really liberal direction of like, Hey, you know, you should do, uh, you should. And, and by the way, when I'm saying liberal, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning, um, religiously, not politically, a really liberal direction of like worship and pray to angels and do all this weird spiritualist stuff. And then on the flip side, they've got the Jews kind of like pulling them. No, no, no. You have to be way more conservative. You have to be more legalistic, all this different kind of stuff. And you see these opposing cultural forces pulling people in each direction. And it's so, I mean, it's so interesting to me living in Sherwood. I feel like I have conversations with people spiritually 
and politically across the spectrum almost every week. You know, I've got, I've got, you know, someone who's so, so conservative, you know, with all these views and particularly takes on different issues. And at the same time, I've got really liberal uh, friends that have a very particular, you know, takes on everything that's going on. And so it's interesting to see this divide that was happening in Colossae. We see it present day in Sherwood and Paul, his hope for the letter is that the Colossians would stop being pulled by either side and would rather walk in maturity and submit their entire lives to Jesus. So we've got this beautiful Christ poem uh, in, in uh, starting in, in verse 15 of chapter one, where it talks about who Jesus is. And then the rest of the book is about kind of aligning our lives under his lordship and under his authority. Now, some of you might be asking why, why did he write the book of Colossians or the letter to the Colossians? And I think that's a fair question because just like Colossae Sherwood, actually, Paul never visited the ancient city of Colossae, at least that we know of. We don't have any record of it. Uh, what we do have is here in the book, and it says that Epaphras is the one who brought news. So if you look at Colossians 1 uh, down in verse 7, it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So it sounds like Epaphras was the disciple of uh, of the church in probably Ephesus when Paul was there at the time and went and took the good news back home to Colossae and then brought news of the church back to Paul. And so it's in this trip, in this journey that we see uh, that this information has come back to Paul through Epaphras. And Epaphras actually has a really beautiful prayer at the end of the letter. If you want to turn uh, to the end of the letter with me, um, I want to look at um, I want to look at Colossians uh, four, and um, I want to show you right here in verse twelve where it says, "Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God." So Epaphras's prayer for the Colossian church is very similar, if not identical to Paul's prayer for the Colossian church to stand mature and be sure of the will of God and to submit their entire lives under, uh, uh, under Christ's authority. And so what's fascinating to me about this is, uh, and this is something I think that we need to pay attention to is not only are we supposed to be who we are, where we are, where we are is filled with people. The, the place where we live has people in it. And uh, my dad loves the saying where he says, relationship is the currency of the kingdom. And that's how we operate. We go and do and, and, and participate in things where God has already provided relationships in our life. And so we go where God, where God is already moving. And Paul sees where God brought this relationship with the pathos across his path and so he's using time and effort to write this very tender letter to the Colossian church because of the relationship that he has with Epaphras and because of Epaphras's, you know, sharing the, where the church in Colossae is at and their struggles and what they're looking forward to and what their challenges are. And Paul writes this beautiful letter and sends it back. Now, the question I think for you and I is, where has God provided relationships in our life? Where are we supposed to be? Where are we supposed to go? 
And I think, by the way, this is kind of a twofold thing. One is, this is why communities are so important. We have to be in community with each other. We have to love one another and care for one another and support one another. But communities cannot be insular where all we're doing is focused on one another because that's, that's good to care for one another. But, you know, Jesus says, uh, I think this is, uh, let me pull this up. I think it's John 13 um, where he says this. Uh, this is John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In verse 34, it says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. We go, got it. Okay, we'll be in community, we'll love one another. And then, verse 35, by this, all people will know you're my disciples. And the, the question arises, how are people supposed to know we're disciples of Jesus if the love we have for one another is never on display? What ways, because not only is, you know, if, if relationship is the currency of the kingdom, how things happen in the kingdom, and we're just using our relational energy on other Christians, and we're never inviting non-Christians into those spaces, how are non-Christians supposed to see the love we have for one another, and thus know that we're disciples of Jesus? You know, this is the question that comes up. So being in community right now is really important. We can't have these massive corporate gatherings like we used to, that we would love to do because of the government's regulations, because of the coronavirus, and because of all these factors. And so right now we meet on Zoom. And, you know, it, it, it serves its purpose. But the reality is we can meet in small groups all over the city. We can be in community. I encourage you, if you're not in community, pursue being in a community. We need each other. We need to love each other. It's talking, you know, that's a part of being who we are, the church, the body of Christ, where we are is with each other. And then beyond that community facilitates mission. Thinking about, thinking about who God has placed in your life or on your path. As, as an example, this last, uh, this last Monday, my community and I, we, we went around the room and we shared uh, names of relationships of people that God has brought into our path that don't know Jesus. And we're sharing this so that the rest of the group can be praying for these people and lifting them up and asking, you know, God, how, how can I love and serve this person? How can, how can I show your love to this person? How can I share the hope that I have with this person? And praying that they would all come to know the living God. We are the people of Yahweh and we get to live like it. Just like the Colossian churches and just like Paul is writing this letter full of hope for the Colossian church to grow in maturity and submit their entire lives to Christ and not be pulled by the left, not be pulled by the right, not, but be centered on Christ and following him. We get to live out who we are, where we already are in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our offices. God has called us to be who we are, where we are. That means even if you're in a dead-end job or you're stuck at school or whatever, you're still on God's mission of reconciling the world back to himself. And this is an incredible thing that we even get to, we get to participate in God's mission because this is what we were created for. So this week, please ask God, say, where, where do you want me to be that I already am? Where, like put a place on my heart, put a person in my heart, to pray for, to love, to pursue, to engage in relationship with. Maybe invite a teenager, you know, to youth group. I mean, maybe it means texting a friend, whatever. Listen to the spirit of God and say, how can I be who I already am, who you created me to be? 
where I already am. Before we go, I want to read the benediction that we're going to read at the end of the gathering every week. And remember, this is um, from Colossians uh, chapter 1, starting in, in verse 9. May you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we ask this week, may we walk in maturity with you, hearing your voice, obeying you. We love you, Lord. Amen.